Welcome to GRC Spotlight, your go-to source for all things governance, risk, and compliance. On this podcast, we'll explore the latest trends and best practices in GRC and bring you interviews with industry experts and thought leaders. Whether you're a compliance professional, a risk manager, or just someone who wants to stay informed about the latest developments in GRC, this is the podcast for you. So tune in and join the conversation as we shine a spotlight on the world of GRC. Hello everyone, my name is Dan Amodio and welcome to GRC Spotlight. In today's episode, we will be discussing safety management and the benefits of having a robust safety management system in place in your organization. We have two expert guests joining us today, Zane Edwards and Ralph Schwartz. Zane Edwards is the Global Director of GRC at Torque Software, bringing over 20 years of experience in managing GRC in both government and the private sector. With an interest in the digital transformation of governments, Zane is also a proficient and persuasive communicator, having delivered talks at conferences on radio, television, and in video format on a national and international scale. Meanwhile, Ralph Schwartz has over 30 years of experience as a veteran of the health, safety, and environment industry, specializing in both corporate and applied WHSEQ risk management. In this episode, Zane and Ralph will be imparting their insights and expertise on the significance of safety management and its applicability to organizations of any size. They will delve into the components of a safety management system, the function of management in cultivating a safety culture, and much, much more. Whether you are an employee, an employer, or simply interested in learning more about safety management, this episode is for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation with our expert guests, kicking things off with Zane Edwards. Zane, how are you today? Dan, I'm doing well, thanks. Great to be with you. Great, thank you. Now, you put out very recently uh, a very thorough and exciting blog post about safety management, which we will put in the notes on this episode for anyone to do some background reading as well. But can you give us the the TLDR, if you like, just the summary of of what you spoke about, because I think it's going to be a great way to frame the conversation today. Yeah, sure, no problem. Dan, really, the focus of the blog was two-pronged. Firstly, why safety management is important. A lot of organisations obviously have a lot of different priorities, and safety management is not always at the top of that priority list. So understanding why it's so critical is really, really important. And at the end of the day, it's really important that we don't lose sight of the, you know, the wood for the trees. It's all about safety. It's about keeping people safe. Obviously, there's you know things that go along with that compliance with with uh, you know regulation and legislation. Obviously, we're looking to reduce the risks around the environment we're operating in. Obviously, we want to create a culture in the organisation where we're actively thinking about safety, not just the the management or the leadership, but something that all staff are thinking about. But we're also going to see how safety is linked to 
performance improvement. So when we don't have downtime due to safety issues or other hazards or things in the workplace, how that's actually delivering directly to you know the efficiency and the output of the of the organisation. And one aspect which is sometimes forgotten is that of reputation. So in today's environment where you know everyone's on social media, there's so much transparency around what's happening not only locally in our community, but more broadly, uh, organisations can take a real uh, real punch if uh, you know they get basic things like safety management wrong and adverse things happen. I'm convinced about the importance here of safety management. So once you cross that line, what else is on the, uh, the mind of, of professionals that are working in this area uh, that they need to keep in mind? Well, and that goes to the second part of the uh, the blog. The second part of it is is really about the how. How do how do we go about doing it? Now, I'm a big fan of things like spreadsheets, but you know it's not really fit for purpose. That sort of tool is not fit for purpose for safety management because there's so many benefits to be realised when you're using a safety management system. Just think, for example, about efficiency and effectiveness. I mean, when you're using a spreadsheet, all data has to be entered manually. There are no workflows. So it's very inefficient and manual process. But think about, um, think about the improved compliance. When we're actually using a system, when we're taking a systematic approach, that in itself leads to a higher level of compliance because it's more transparent, it's more visible, we're actively putting it in people's minds. We're not just reactive, we're being proactive. Uh, also the issue of scalability. So as organisations grow, you know, that spreadsheet is not going to become any easier as the organisation gets larger. In fact, it's going to become more challenging. So the ability to scale up and accommodate those uh, changes in organisational size. And then think about the data. So in a spreadsheet, everyone's got to be accessing a you know, single file and a folder somewhere. Whereas in a system, you know, you can provide a range of different levels of access to different roles within the organisation. So not only are you approving accessibility, you've actually got some control around accessibility as well. And all around better data management, all the information in one place, single source of truth, and uh, then of course that provides better reporting and uh, insight into what's happening in the safety space. So uh, that's really the, the how how to go about it. And for my money, but you know, I'm, I'm all about efficiency, all about taking complex things and making it simple for organisations or as simple as possible in the, in the context. And look, for me, it's a no-brainer. Um, a system is a must for an organisation in today's environment. Hmm. I'm interested in, in thinking about how these things change over time. I would imagine when you might start it in your career the concepts of safety management and some of the practices that required to stay compliant may have looked one way, and then as things change, um, those things can, can, can change with it. Um, how have you seen this industry change over time? Uh, for someone that's been in it for a long time, um, where do you see where we are now compared to where it's been previously? Oh, look, Dan, it's changed massively. Uh, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I did a bit of a work in a, bit of work in a warehouse. 
uh, where there's a lot of manual handling. And certainly from time to time, there are there were incidents in that environment related to work health and safety. But back then, everything was manual. It was all done on a bit of paper, so it wasn't even a spreadsheet. I mean, you know, we didn't even have computers in those. No, I'm not, not that old, really. But we didn't have computers in the warehouse, so everything was literally done uh, in a paper-based environment. So I'm assuming that someone somewhere was collating all of that stuff and uh, reporting what had to be reported and managing, you know, action items that needed to be managed as a consequence of whatever happened, but it was all manual. So fast forward to, you know, today, where we do have computers, where we do have the ability to systematise, digitise some of these functions, and it's, it's chalk and cheese. So, so much more efficient, but we're getting better outcomes as well. Yeah. Another part of that, you think about a paper-based form, what happens when the legislation that happens to be regulating your area changes and something else needs to be captured or something needs to be changed, the whole process would have to be be transformed to to reflect those changes, right? Oh, 100%. And that, that is a real challenge because if you've got distributed forms that have been created manually, uh, number one, you've got to have someone monitoring it and aware of the change. Number two, that's going to require some effort to update. And number three, you've got to then distribute that, retrain. So it's a, it's a massive undertaking just to try and stay up with it. And that's why, quite frankly, uh, you know, in the old days, a lot of organisations didn't. Uh, they just, uh, you know, they just did what they had to to keep going. And sometimes it was at the expense of safety. Yeah, of course. So let's, uh, I'm going to put myself in the big boss chair now. I'm up at the, up at the top of the ivory tower. Um, What's on my mind? Um, obviously, I, I heard you at the beginning. I, I understand that safety is important, and I understand the risks of getting it wrong. Um, as I'm going through all of my range of duties, what am I thinking about? Um, what am I focusing on? What information do I need to be reviewing on a regular basis to make sure that my organization is doing what it needs to do in this area? Well, I think the very first thing is it needs to be to be very much linked to your risk management process. So in other words, safety's got to be right there amongst one of the enterprise risks that you're actively managing. So using risk management as a tool to understand you know, your safety environment is, is, is really powerful because you've got a, a structured approach and it also enables you to prioritise the those um, safety requirements or those safety risks against other risks in your uh, in your organization because nothing stands alone you've got a whole lot of priorities you've got a whole lot of issues that you've got to manage so you've got to understand the um, the relative priority of those and including that as part of your risk management uh, uh, framework and risk management approach is, is really really important mm. um, so while I'm reviewing all of that information, these are coming to me in reports, I would imagine, that include um, any issues that have come up. I'm just trying to think about how that process would work. There's a big step in the middle there, which is capturing and collating all that information and then putting it into a report that can then be digested by the right people that, as you, as you mentioned, have safety as one of their many priorities that they need to, um, to manage. 
Is that a time-consuming process generally for, for the people that are responsible for risk or safety in their organization to have to put together all of this information and, and compile it into a report that can make sense in a couple of bullet points? Oh, look, it, it absolutely can. If you're doing that manually, that can be a massive task to the, to the extent that a lot of organizations simply wouldn't do it because it's just too hard. And this is where it's about maturing your approach to safety management and moving from you know, being a reactive organization to a proactive organization. So rather than waiting for something to go wrong and then doing something about it, it's about actually being aware of the environment and what risks we've got, the, um, the relative level of those risks, and then being able to have the information to think about, okay, what are, what are the controls we've got in place? What other things should we be doing? Is this within acceptable, is it within a reasonable um, you know, risk level for our organisation? And then, then responding proactively to that. So yes, going back to your original question, putting that together can take a long time. Again, that's where a system can really, really help because you're identifying those risks, you're linking them to the relevant controls, you're looking at your residual risk level, and then you can assess that against your tolerance for, you know, your appetite for that type of risk within the organisation. And then you've got some hard data, you've actually got some evidence on which to base your decision making and what you do from here. Hmm. Um, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier uh, about the reputation side of things. I think it's pretty clear how you can get a bad one. If things go wrong, um, especially um, in, in your background in, in, in the public service, those issues can often be covered um, in, in the wide media um, and be public information, and, and it can make that, um, make that issue very loud. Mm. Does it then work the other way? So if you have established this culture of safety and you put these processes into place where people feel like the organization is taking a strategic and thorough approach to making sure everyone is, is, is safe, do you find that it can work the other way where that positive reputation can attract certain people and help create an, an interesting culture in the organization? That is a great question. And in my view, the answer to that is absolutely now, this is probably a topic for another day, but ESG is very, very topical at the moment. So environmental and social governance, what organisations are doing in that space. So historically, organisations, when they're reporting to shareholders and stakeholders, have traditionally focused on you know, financial elements. So it's all about financial statements. It's all, all about the financial performance. However, in uh, today's climate, it's those non-financial elements which are really coming to the fore. And obviously, the things that we're seeing happening in our environment is driving that. But it's not just about environment. ESG also has a social element. And part of that social element is how the organisation treats and supports its staff. And safety is a really important element of that. So for organisations who are starting to think about ESG, might be putting some metrics in place, might be getting to do some reporting to stakeholders and shareholders, safety is a, re a really important element of that. And it can be a great news story to highlight not only the financial aspects of how an organisation is performing, but some of these other non-financial aspects as well. And uh, a lot of um, workplaces, for example, might talk about number of 
you know, accident-free days. So there's some really simple measures that you can use to actually talk about uh, workplace performance in terms of safety. Great. Um, so at the beginning of the conversation, I asked you to look back on how things had changed over the last um, little while. At the end here, I want you to look forward. So you've, um, throughout your career, you've spent the last 20 years or so working in, the, in and around the, the public service in this area. Project forward another 20 years in, what would that be, 2043, and someone sitting in the big chair and having some of these requirements. What is life going to look like for those individuals, and how would you find it to be different in the world of safety management then as opposed to how it is now? Well, if I can respond to that more broadly in terms of governance risk and compliance more broadly... When we look at where we've come from, in fact, for a lot of organisations not that long ago, a lot of these GRC activities were kind of like an item to be checked off. We've, we've got to do it because we've got to do it. But there wasn't a really great understanding of how that was adding value and creating value within the organisation. What we're seeing uh, today is that organisations are beginning to understand the importance of GRC, including safety management, and the value that that does create for the organisation. I think the next evolution of that is going to be seeing these functions becoming really joined up and super integrated into what we're doing every day. So it's not kind of a standalone thing that we do from time to time. It's actually integrated into what we're doing every day. So it becomes a really important inherent core part of the actual business process. So we won't talk about, you know, the the functions of the organisation uh, separate from GRC. It's all going to be one thing that's all joined up. That's where I see the future. That's great. Uh, well, Zane, I wish that conversations like this could be joined up into each and every one of my days but we're going to have to wait until the next episode of GRC Spotlight to continue this conversation. But thanks, as always, for your time and expertise on the topic of safety management. Thanks, Dan. Always a pleasure. And we will be right back after a quick break. Are you tired of managing compliance and safety risks manually? Are you looking for an efficient and effective way to streamline your organization's GRC processes? Look no further than Lighthouse. Lighthouse is the premier governance, risk, and compliance software. It simplifies the process of managing safety and compliance for organizations of all sizes. With Lighthouse, you can easily manage safety controls, track compliance against regulations, and mitigate risks all in one centralized location. Lighthouse's cloud-based software is user-friendly and fully configurable, making it easy for anyone in your organization to use. Plus, with its live dashboards and scheduled and on-demand reporting, Lighthouse allows you to quickly identify and address any potential issues before they become major problems. Don't let safety management and compliance remain an all-consuming activity that is managed across multiple spreadsheets. 
Learn more about Lighthouse and take control of your organizational safety and compliance today. Visit our website at www.torque.software to schedule a free demo and see for yourself why Lighthouse is the efficient and cost-effective solution. That website again, www.torque.software. Welcome back to GRC Spotlight. We are very excited to have Ralph Schwartz joining us for a conversation today. Ralph is a veteran of the health, safety, environment industry for 35 plus years, brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to the table, and we are so pleased to have him join the conversation today. Ralph, why don't we start at the beginning if we could. Could you tell us a little bit about where your career uh, in HSE got started? Yeah, back in uh, in the early 80s, I, I worked for the Department of Leisure, Sport and Tourism in New South Wales, also known as the Department of Sport and Rec or Recreation, and uh, worked with a team that uh, we were investigating pool drownings. It's a fairly sombre subject that um, we, we uh, the team that I was in, involved with and, and working with, went out to, to every single pool drowning in, and our region was uh, was the Greater Sydney region, and identified what the causal factors were. So public safety being um, being my introduction, also worked um, as a as a as a lifeguard and worked with the department on various events and water safety week and things like that. So that's how I got started. Um, in the in the late 80s, I, I worked in the resources industry, just as safety was becoming um, uh, fairly important in that industry. Lots of of serious incidents, injuries, and fatalities even, and uh, in the industry was demanding some results. And safety wasn't a new concept in uh, in Australia, but I didn't do a lot of work in in Australia. I did a lot of work overseas. But safety was becoming a topic that uh, shareholders were getting very interested in, and and uh, we're talking about the uh, the oil and gas and and, and mining industries there, um, and I just started to to, uh, to to get involved in safety there, um, and then uh, spent a bit of time educating myself and and doing um, doing a, a diplomas and and a bachelor's and uh, and moving forward. And in the mid '90s, I was working in uh, in Tasmania on a on a on a mine site there, and the managing director said, "Hey, can you put together a safety system?" And I went, "Hey, how hard how hard can it be?" And realised it it wasn't all that easy, um, and there was lots of legislation, lots of bits and pieces that I needed to get on top of. So then I really got quite serious about uh, about looking into health and safety, and started to understand the um, the evolving and the changing HSC environment. Um, you know, harmonised uh, legislation was starting to become, um, was coming into Australia, the Robin-style legislation. So it was actually a fascinating subject. And since the mid-90s, I, I haven't turned back. Great. Thanks for that. And what about your current role? Uh, current role, I'm, I'm working for a, um, a, a large um, infrastructure project. I'm the HSE manager on a for a global company um, in southern New South Wales, and uh, and and we're a fairly large contractor in the electrical and mechanical space on on a particular project there. Um, and so uh, that that gets me working with uh, with every aspect of the health and safety 
environment from system development and you know implementation and embedding and culture and uh, ongoing compliance assurance and and audits and and all sorts of stuff uh, even down to uh, rolling that out and implementing that with uh, various contractor organizations that we deal that's great your industry is a very interesting one um, and some of the safety challenges, I think, stand out as pretty obvious. But can you give us a little bit of information um, about some of the challenges that your industry and you face in your current role? One of our big challenges is location. We're in a remote site, and quite a few of the current infrastructure projects on the East Coast are, are in remote locations. Um, and then challenges that go along with remoteness, you know, getting getting materials and, and various bits and pieces to site, uh, you know, the transport rules and, and some of the some of the areas that we're working in are national parks and, and other areas with with high um, sorry, with uh, with high natural values and cultural values. Access to qualified and experienced personnel in the current labour market. We have so so much competition. Um, with all these infrastructure projects, um, attracting and retaining qualified people and people who have got experience in the areas that we need them is uh, is a fairly big challenge. Um, international pressures such as uh, COVID and the Ukraine war um, on on supply chains um, that's a real challenge for for us because we are we're building infrastructure projects and trying to get them manufactured and and get the materials and the equipment shipped from. Uh, from the manufacturing centres of the world, which is uh, mainly Asia at the moment, it's proving uh, a bit of a problem, and um, and also some of the potential um, hot spots in the uh, in the Pacific region um, could still cause us more problems. We're not you know we're not sure of those at the moment, but but those are three aspects that uh, that some of the challenges we've, we're we're facing at the moment. That's great. Uh, I'd like to ask you about a couple of things. First, I'd like to ask you about um, some of your recruiting, and, and you mentioned some of the challenges related to staff. I find that to be a really interesting challenge because I would imagine you're recruiting largely from outside of your industry um, into the industry. How do you manage some of those challenges, and, and how do you find the general skill level or understanding of the of the HSE culture and environment translates into your industry, and um, how is your training and, and conversations with that new staff um, handled as a result? Yeah, well, one of the, to answer some of that uh, some of that question is is to uh, is the, the portability of skill sets among safety people is uh, is is generally quite okay. Um, if you've got experience in heavy industry or in manufacturing um, heavy components, um, the, the, the transportability or the portability of those skills is, is something that we rely on. And we're actually looking for people who have demonstrated the ability to um, take those skills from one industry to another. That, that's a key for us. In, in the manufacturing sector or, or the construction sector and things like that, the more technical trades, such as project managers, uh, project directors, um, and supervisors, there's a bigger requirement for those personnel to have direct skills. But safety, thankfully, um, we can actually rely on on good people having having good skills that are that are transportable. So in the recruitment phase, what we're trying to do is get people to be 
interested in coming and working on our project rather than another one. And, and that's the traditional methods of remuneration, you know, context, work experience. Working on a, on a large project is, is going to, uh, to, to be great to see in someone's CV in the future. So attracting good people is, uh, it, you know, it's a combination of, of various factors that we need to, to look at during, through recruitment and then that onboarding process. Having conversations with the people as they come on board, I think in any context, induction and uh, initial training is, is key to everything. If you onboard people and you give them all the information they need to be able to do a job and do it well and succeed and be successful, then uh, information is key. It's not only a legislative requirement, but it's also good to uh, to be transparent with people and and uh, and explain your expectations early and and get that on board straight away. Of course, um, can we talk a little bit more about the some of your legislative requirements? You are in a is it fair to say a very highly regulated um, industry? How do you First off, get your head around the existing legislation um, that you need to comply with. And then how do you then translate those into a day-to-day activity where you need to make sure that the, the feet on the street, the, the people that are actually working, are, are in compliance uh, with that legislation? Yeah, well, for, for for us in Australia who are who are used to this sort of work, we've watched the legislation evolve uh, from you know from pre-harmonised legislation to the current harmonised system, and and thankfully part of that portability of skills is that a lot of uh, quite a few states in in Australia have similar or or, or identical legislation, uh, both uh, acts and regs and and the codes of practice. So in that regard, we, we understand what we need to do to keep people safe. And we also have the, the codes of practice to say, hey, this is best practice and this is what we're looking for, or this is what you should be looking for in, in your application and your, and your implementation. Then what that happens is every single rule that you've got, you need to have an end state and say, okay, how, how do we implement this rule? How do we make sure that it's being followed? How do we show an auditor that we were actually complying with this because if, uh, if we get orders to buy our, our client um, fairly regularly as most subcontractors or contractors on a, on a big project are going to be audited, the ability to show an auditor, hey, we've, we've, we've done this and this is the, the evidence that we can do that. So working in this, in this industry to keep people safe, you want to keep people safe, that should be your highest priority. Your ability to show compliance needs to be a fairly close second um, because there's so much scrutiny right now um, and more so than any other time in our past that uh, we can show evidence that before things go get nasty, we can, we, can, we can show evidence and we can show the process that we've gone through to get there. Another one is the, is the consultation process and the ability for us to get information from the people who are at the coalface, so to speak, people who are conducting the work and looping them into all the risk assessment, risk identification and, and risk control processes and saying, hey, we want to control this risk by doing this or this hazard by doing this and having that feedback to go, well, hang on, we, we can't do that because, you know, there's a limitation here or a limitation there. That consultation is 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 uh, equally as important as, uh, as the other two points. 
That's great. So you mentioned the the auditors and, and the audit process. I can imagine that being a little bit challenging to try to prove some things and, and show that compliance. How do you manage that process uh, now, and, and what are some of the challenges that you see uh, pop up as uh, as part of your um, as part of your work in that area? I, I learned early in in, in my career that um, a, a great friend and mentor of mine said to me, "The system determines the behaviour." So if you design the system, and I've used this plenty of times in my career, if you design your systems correctly and have all the various requirements, the key performance requirements, and then the indicators that show that you're actually in compliance, and if you're doing it that way and and you you build the system correctly, the system will then determine the behaviour. And behaviour then shapes culture. And once you've got all of those those aspects uh, vertically aligned through your implementation, through your audit processes, and through the feedback sessions that you get with toolbox talks and, and other safety meetings, you can then get a fairly decent indicator that you've done the right thing. It may not be as hard as you, it, I don't think it's as hard as you, you maybe think it is if you design the system correctly. If you haven't, and then you're constantly catching up, uh, or if there was a massive change in legislation, everyone would be constantly trying to catch up. If you do it right in the beginning and at the start of your process, everything flows on from there. You are you're you're a part of a large organization with a, a lot of people and a lot of moving parts, uh, both in the office and out on location. So, with all of those various requirements from a compliance perspective that you have, and the importance that you said of a, of a system, how do you manage that now? I'm I'm picturing. A lot of communication back and forth, which probably includes a lot of paperwork and, and things. How, how are you managing um, that now? And do you have any technology in place that can help uh, you with that? Well, conceptually, we, we, we have exactly that problem. We've got uh, a, a very varied workforce with different numeracy and literacy abilities. We need to, uh, to 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 manage those expectations and, and those limitations. We've got where people coming from overseas who may not be used to the Australian legislative landscape or regulatory landscape and and cultural differences. So we've got lots of moving parts, as you as you mentioned. Um, so a key is communication and identifying that end state that I mentioned earlier. What evidence do we need to collect to satisfy an auditor? What do we need to do to make sure that we know we're complying and, uh, and our client knows we're complying? And that end state includes not only having a form and, and having the ability to collect the evidence, but also to put that in a training package and to to roll that out to the people concerned. So training becomes such a vital part of this process because people rock up on site. They have no idea what they need to do until you tell them. So communicating that through training packages through assessment packages from through sign on on sheets uh, so they've under they've received and understood the, the the information you're giving them and then also having that link to a job description and a and a, a, a KPI a, an indicator so that they're performing those compliance duties so information is key the as far as the technology and how we actually deliver that 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 continues to be a challenge as the industry and our general safety industry, as well as the, the various construction, engineering and various other industries, digitise more and more, we're finding a whole lot of better solutions and, uh, and, and we're seeing 
the ability to take paper-based forms and turn them into database um, entries, uh, digital on a screen, some areas and some environments you're not allowed to use those sorts of devices, um, unfortunately, but others uh, we can actually do that and we're looking to digitise as much of our content and, and, those, uh, and that end state that we know we've got it in the database and we've got backups and we're using secure servers and things like that. Yeah, great. And then once reporting time comes, anyone that's been involved in, in, a, in an audit either at the government level like you're speaking about or even your boss saying, hey, I need you to give me your report on this and that, that can be an equally time-consuming part of the process is not trying to pull all of your information and then, and then prove that a certain thing has been done or, or uh, sometimes not done. What's the, report, well, uh, what's the reporting process like? Well, look, there's... there's Collecting data is, is useless if you're not going to use it. I've, I've always said that. If you're going to collect a piece of data, you need to know what you're going to do with it. You need to know that end state. Um, and the flow-on of data needs to, uh, to to come through in in, in, a, in a very clear methodology and you need to have a reason for the data. And it needs to inform someone. So the, the safety team, the construction management team, the, uh, the, the project directors and project managers, they're all going to have different requirements for the data that they're looking at on a different um, different level um, and, and a different parts of their function. The the ability for the data to flow through and data generally is, is good like that, it's digital. Uh, you can then start designing individual dashboards um, and we're currently looking at software where we can comfortably uh, have our purchasing department, our logistics department, our contracts department as well as various other functions including safety to have the the metrics come up during through that that vertical alignment that the data goes to a it goes into a database and b it comes out the way it needs to come out. It's very important. Yeah, great. I'm going to ask you to um, to bring out your magic wand a little bit here, Ralph, because you are now you are now the um, the czar of this area, and you have the ability with your <laughs> magic wand to create to create a solution that removes all of those. All of that friction and all of those struggles. What are some what, what are some things that um, you would like to wave that wand at and and say well, this really needs to be improved? And if we couldn't prove that, the organization can 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 achieve some serious benefits as a result. Look, I'm, I'm not really sure. I the current state of, of the market of, of software that's that's available to collect and then store and then present data is, is is pretty good there's a there's excellent service providers out there um i guess what i'd want to do is is a make them more affordable um so that all organizations can have the benefit of, of being able to to entry level uh some of these hse um this hse data and 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 present it to where it needs to be presented and look at trends and and various things um so Affordability is is one thing, um, and that the software companies continue to listen to their markets and continue to adapt with the market and the current pressures. I mentioned earlier the the competition that currently we've got with all the various infrastructure projects on the east coast. There's also um, there's there's also huge pressures for for pricing, um, for for supply chains and also for for for, for the 
the available profit to be made from projects. So many projects are being tendered short in the early days and people aren't recognising that and pulling that, that technology in earlier to, to look at some of this stuff could be helpful as well. I think some, some companies are still tendering on, on Excel spreadsheets and I, I don't believe that's the way forward. You, um, you've mentioned a, a few changes that you've seen in the industry over uh, the course of your career. Um, you mentioned uh, the digitization of some of the, of the processes. Um, you've mentioned some legislative uh, changes that have, that have occurred over, over the course of, of your career. So that's over the last 35 years. Now, let's suspend reality a little bit more here and think about the next 35 years. So in 35 years, you're, you're sitting on a beach somewhere up in, up in Queensland, um, sipping cocktails and, 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 and enjoying, enjoying the good life. But someone else who's in your role now, what sort of challenges are, are they going to be facing, do you think? Um, where is the industry headed, and, and what are some of the changes that you uh, that you see coming down coming down the road? Yeah, look, I, I if you look at the last three years since we've had COVID, and you see how the ways of working have changed in this short amount of time, you look at the previous five years and 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 how automation has uh, has crept in in many industries. You know, we now have mines that have completely driverless trucks and various things like that. I believe that's going to be our, our major challenge to continue to adapt to the changing ways of work. Um, we're going to need to have infrastructure regardless. We're going to need to continue to build roads and, and dams and um, and and, uh, and buildings and, and all the other various infrastructure we need to continue to for a society to grow. And, um, and although other industries will, will lose people where automation is going to take those people away, construction and the, and the heavy industries are always going to need to have people um, and I think what we need to do is uh, is identify where those those areas of automation are going to impact on us in the future if you look at our responses to how COVID uh, came uh, came about it was one of those situations where we, we were doing catch-up the whole time you can't predict most of, of these global events we couldn't predict the, the Ukraine war. We, we're currently hoping that we can predict some other tensions in the Pacific area. Not quite sure how they're going to affect the world as a, as a whole and the, the way we do business. But it's, you know, the ability to adapt is is key here. Um, the other the other one that I'm looking at some of the changes within 30 years. If you look back at, at the various Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, millennials, and various things like that, and the way people approach work um, we have a completely unknown labor market in our future um, you know the, the job my job as a safety person is to keep people safe keep people alive eliminate risk wherever possible and if we can't then to to make it as low as reasonably practical that's what the legislation says but we're currently getting struggles with both workers and managers thinking different or thinking differently than the way you and I would have thought in our younger days and we need to adapt to those changing attitudes toward work and toward their own safety. And it's been really interesting. It's been quite a, a privilege to, to work with people of, of all different ages because age is no barrier in this particular business. And seeing the, the attitudes and how they change and, and people's um, engagement and disengagement with their environments and, and being quite 
quite stunned and, and quite surprised and, and, and a little shocked at, at some how, how how different people engage or don't engage with their environment. And I think that's going to be a, an evolving and a continuing um, challenge in the future. I think that's going to be our biggest one. How what sort of generations are we are we bringing into the world? What do they understand about risk? What do they understand about the context in which they're working, and uh, and keeping them safe? Very interesting times. So across some of the various industries that you've spent time in during your career, what are some of the uh, the differences and some of the the, the risks um, between those uh, those industries? Yeah, look in, in in construction and in 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 heavy machinery, there's risks there that things can fall on you, things can break and and hurt you, and 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 you know there's there's high consequence. The likelihoods are, are sometimes high as well. If you look at something that's predominantly like a government department and people are working in offices, you don't have those sorts of risks. But mainly the, in those sorts of areas, the 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 environments create their own types of risks. And and what I encountered when I was with the government was um, was the mental health risks um, and dealing with people. Um, so in look in every different environment, in every different situation, it's all contextual based on on the environment around you it's all environmental well listen this is a uh, this is a grc podcast and it is an absolute pleasure to to speak to someone that has such great experience in grc and uh ralph schwartz thank you again for uh, for your time and and for uh, for having such a great conversation today my pleasure anytime thanks dan And that wraps up today's episode of GRC Spotlight. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.